Blog Talk Radio. Ignite your life with passion and purpose. Your health, your wealth, your happiness. Make it good. This is Modern Love with Dr. Brenda Wade. A big thank you to Rainbow Grocery, our favorite grocery store here in the San Francisco Bay Area, for being our sponsor, because a healthy body is a sexy body. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Modern Love Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Brenda Wade, the Modern Love Doctor, and we have an unusual story today. I think unusual is to put it lightly. We're talking with the author of Red Notice, Bill Browder, the book, has just come out in the last month. It hit the New York Times bestseller list. When you pick it up, you will know why it's on that bestseller list. It's a fabulous read. I've read it, and I have to tell you, it's a page-turner in the true sense of the word. And the author is, in my view, a modern-day hero, someone who will inspire you to rise to... Heights you never thought you could rise to. So with no further ado, let me introduce the author of Red Notice, Bill Browder. Welcome to the show, Bill. I was actually just going to answer the same thing myself. Wow, what a story and what a challenge you faced in your life in the last few years. I believe it's been about five to six years. But start at the beginning so that our audience knows how you ended up being Putin's number one enemy and in a fight that has covered the continents has included murder and all sorts of incredible things but how did you get in this yes yeah, it's, it's 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 very strange when people hear my voice they, 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 that's the first thing they wonder is how does this guy if you saw me I'm a, I'm a uh, described as a mild-mannered guy with an american accent how did i end up in such a mess and and the, and the story goes back a long way I come from a, an American family, but a very unusual American family. My grandfather um, was a labor union organizer in Wichita, Kansas. And he was so good at organizing the union that um, in 1927, the Russian or the, the Soviet Communist Party invited him to Russia. Um, and in Russia, um, he met my grandmother there. They spent five years there. My father was born in Moscow. And then they returned to America, and my grandfather became the general secretary of the American Communist Party for the next 13 years. He ran for president wow. <laughs> against Roosevelt as a communist. And then he was eventually kicked out of the Communist Party by Stalin for being too capitalist. And, and if that wasn't enough, he was then persecuted during the McCarthy era in the 1950s for being a communist, even though he was not a good communist, according to Stalin. So... He was getting knocked around all different ways because of his political beliefs. And I, I'm, I was born in 1964. I'm 50 years old now. And when I was going through my teenage rebellion, um, uh, I, I thought to myself, well, how, what's the best way of rebelling from a family of communists? And, and I came up with this great idea of putting on a suit and tie and becoming a capitalist. <laughs> That'll show them. <laughs> nothing I could do that would upset my parents more than that. 
so I, I put on a suit and tie, become a capitalist, and, and end up at Stanford Business School. And I'm graduating in 1989, which is the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And most of the kids coming out of business school, with, along with me, were, were, we were all trying to figure out what to do with our lives, what jobs to take next. And none of the regular jobs <clears throat> on Wall Street and other places interested me that much. And then I had this epiphany, which was, if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, I'm going to go and become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And that's what I set out to do. So, so I, um, I moved to, um, to London, and I start um, working my way into Eastern Europe. And I eventually find a job um, at Solomon Brothers, which doesn't exist anymore, but um, uh, Citigroup. But Solomon Brothers is a swashbuckling investment bank and I find a job on their Russian team just at the time when Russia had, was starting its privatization program. And, and uh, Russia, the, the, the um, uh, president of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, had decided that if, if everybody, to go from communism to capitalism, if he just made everybody capitalist by giving them some, some stuff for free, then they're not going to want to be communists ever again. And so they gave away all the state property and all the companies in Russia. They gave them away for free. To the people. Now, it didn't work free. out. It, it didn't really work out the way they had planned. Oh my instead, God. Of, instead of having everybody becoming these sort of wealthy and happy capitalists, it ended up that 22 guys ended up with most of the stuff. They had 22 individuals ended up with 40% of the country. Oh, which is how we ended up with the oligarchs. Oh my goodness. Exactly. They're, they're the oligarchs. But, but uh, for those people who were paying attention, there were little crumbs falling off the table from, from these oligarchs that they weren't paying attention to. And those crumbs were the, the shares of these Russian companies. And so and the shares were, were so cheap, they were trading at like more than a 99% discount to everything else out there, or everything else in the West. And so I ended up um, leaving Solomon Brothers and setting up uh, uh, an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund to invest in this stuff. And um, I started out with almost nothing. And... Um, Step by step, uh, uh, I started making money from my from my investors, and um, uh, and I ended up eventually becoming the largest foreign investment fund in the country with four and a half billion dollars invested in Russia. Oh my God! All, from nothing to four and a half billion dollars—that's so unheard my, I, of. It was it was, it was a of. true. So you were true, the king of all the capitalists. Uh, it was uh, it was a true Wall Street success story, but not on Wall Street, but in Moscow. And um, uh, <clears throat> now this wasn't my money; this was my client's money. But I was really a, a in the in the parlance of of liars poker. I was a big swinging dick out there. I was I was the guy who I was the main man. And however, I, I discovered something really um, really um, awful, which was that, uh, and and it shouldn't have been a surprise. But I discovered that all the companies that I was investing in were basically run. Um, by these oligarchs, and the oligarchs were stealing all the money. They weren't um, behaving themselves. And so I, I, had, I had a choice. There I was, managing everybody's money. I was, I was uh, responsible for $4.5 billion worth of my clients' money, and all the companies that I was investing in were being robbed blind by the oligarchs. And so I decided to do something which changed my fate forever, which was I decided to take them on. I decided to fight the oligarchs. Now, Bill, how did you come to... A decision like that, I'm going to fight the oligarchs. I mean, did you not think they were dangerous, or you? I just—that's an astonishing decision. Well, it, it came to me not not by—it wasn't a sort of 
proactive in, an, in the abstract decision. I was in a situation where one of the oligarchs was trying to steal um, $100 million from, from, from my fund, basically. And $100 million is a lot of money. It wasn't my money. It was my, it was my client's money. And he was going to steal $100, billion, $100 million, actually a little bit less, but roughly $100 million. And I was looking at this, and I say, I just can't allow this to happen. And so I took this guy on, and <clears throat> I worked with the press. I worked with all the other investors to make sure everyone knew what was happening. I worked with the stock market regulator. I made a, a, a huge storm of, of indignation about the whole thing. And amazingly, in my first fight, I won. I won a, I won a, a $100 million war against one of the oligarchs. And and it was probably that winning that that changed my whole. So I, I I felt like I was forced into that first fight, but once I once I had had that win, I thought you know these guys aren't as bad as everybody thinks they are. I can do this, and so I started taking on other oligarchs, and I, I t- was taking them on sometimes proactively. No, I was no longer reacting. I was like looking for trouble, not not waiting for trouble to come to me, and and I, I went after a whole bunch of them in different places, and for a while it worked. It couldn't have worked better for a very funny reason. It turned out that while I was fighting with the oligarchs, um, Vladimir Putin had just come to power. And Vladimir Putin had the same problem with oligarchs that I did. So the oligarchs were stealing money from me, and they were stealing power from him. <clears throat> ah. And so Vladimir Putin, I've never met this guy, ever. And however, um, we had this strange alignment of interests where we were both fighting with the same guys. And there's an expression that your enemy's enemy is your friend in, in these places like Russia. And so I would publicize all these scandals about these guys in order to um, get them to stop. And, and Vladimir Putin would step on top of these um, campaigns that I was doing and, and then topple the oligarchs over in different situations. And so he was firing people and issuing presidential decrees and having the government pass new laws that were all helping me in my fights with the oligarchs. And so for about four years, I had the most blessed life because I was making money and doing good in the same job. It's very very rare that you can have a job where you can do both. You can either try to do good and you don't make money, or you can try to make money and you don't do good. But I had this blessed life where I was able to do both. Wow, but Except Putin, in the meantime, uh, was really doing all of this to consolidate his power and get a firm grip on the country. Exactly. And so basically my little dream world came to an end um, in, at the end of 2003, beginning of 2004. And the reason it did was that Putin won his war with the oligarchs when he arrested the richest oligarch in the country, a man named Michael Hordakovsky. And Michael Hordakovsky um, was richer and smarter than almost any of these other guys. And, and Putin put him on trial and they allowed the television cameras to come film a trial in which the richest man in Russia was sitting in a cage. And this had a dramatic psychological impact on the rest of the rich guys in Russia. Imagine that you're 17th richest guy in Russia. You're on your yacht, parked off the Hotel du Cap in Antibes, France. And all of a sudden, you turn on the CNN and you see the richest man in the country sitting in a cage. I'll tell you that they, these guys panicked, and they all went back to Russia, and they went to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage? And I wasn't there, so I can't attest to this from firsthand experience, but 
But what I can tell you, he said, was 50%. He said 50%, not for 50%. Wow. Not for the government or anything, but 50% for himself. And at that point, in my opinion, he became the, the richest man in the world. And certainly the behavior that he had towards the oligarchs and the oligarchs had towards him changed. And I was out there still fighting with the oligarchs to try to get them to stop stealing. But instead of fighting with Putin's enemies, I was now fighting with Putin's own personal interests. And so in November of 2005, after living there for 10 years, I was, when I came back from a weekend trip abroad, I was stopped at the border. I was detained for 15 hours. And then I was deported and declared a threat to national security. And from that moment on, I knew that my life was about to change in a very ugly way. Wow. So to become a threat to national security means you're a threat to Putin's financial interests. Exactly. Now, let me tell you something. When the Russians turn on you, they don't do so mildly. They do so with extreme prejudice. And I knew this. And so it was really important for me to get all of my people out of Russia so nobody could be arrested and to get all of my clients' money out of Russia so none of the money can be seized. And I did both. I evacuated my staff, and I quickly and quietly sold every last security we held in Russia, and I got everything out. And I dusted off my hands, and I thought, phew, that was close. Now I can move on. I'm, I'm done with Russia. The only problem is that Russia was just getting started with me. And so instead of being able to move on, um, about 18 months after I was expelled, uh, 25 police officers raided my office in Moscow, and 25 more officers raided the office of my law firm, an American law firm I used. And they were specifically looking for the stamps and seals and certificates for our investment holding companies, companies that we invested all of our money in Russia. And they wanted to get all these documents. Um, and, we, and at first, we didn't know why. And then we discovered, a couple months later, that the reason for seizing these documents is they use the documents to steal our investment holding companies, to basically re-register our investment companies out of our name into the name of a man who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early by the police to sign his name on documents. Now, we were shocked to say that. Oh, my God, just hearing that is so crazy and convoluted. The police come in and steal your documents, let a murderer out of prison so he can put his name on the documents. This is so crazy and nefarious, it's hard to even imagine. Well, hold, hold on to that thought because it gets more crazy and more nefarious. So I go out and hire the smartest lawyer I know in Russia, a man named Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei was about 35 years old at the time, and he was one of these whiz kids, one of these people who could do 10 things in the time it takes others to do one. <coughs> And Sergey is, is, um, starts investigating, and he starts investigating to figure out what was going on, and he comes back with the most unbelievable conclusions. Well, the first one is not so unbelievable. The first one is that the people, these guys tried to use our stolen companies then to seize all the assets that we had in Russia, and they went to all of our banks looking for assets to seize, and they came up empty-handed because we had taken everything out of the country. And so I was pretty happy about that, and I, I even had a good laugh at, the, at all their effort, thinking, huh, you know, they put all this effort in. And Sergei said, don't, don't laugh. And, and, then, and then he came up with the second conclusion, which, is, which was far more disturbing, which is that, that um, 
when they didn't succeed in getting our money, the police then turned their attentions to the taxes that we paid in the previous year. <clears throat> we paid $230 million of taxes when I was liquidating all of our holdings. And the police and this group of other crooks went to the tax authorities, and they said to the tax authorities, there was a mistake made in the previous year's tax filing, and the $230 million shouldn't have been paid, and they came up with all sorts of convoluted arguments. They said instead, the $230 million should be paid back to these stolen companies. It was the largest tax refund request in the history of Russia, $230 million, applied for two days before Christmas, 2007, and it was approved on the next day. $230 million. The next day from a bureaucracy, like the Russian bureaucracy? On Christmas Eve. I mean, if you have $5,000 tax refund and you're just a regular person, it would take you 10 years. But an illegal tax refund to people connected to the law enforcement agencies is done the next day on Christmas Eve. So they get this money, and, you know, everybody in the world, even to this day, believes that Putin is a nationalist. I think he's, you know, he may be rough around the edges, he may, you know, be parading on his horseback without a shirt, but he's a nationalist, people say. He, he's looking, for, looking out for the good of Russia. And I thought the same thing back then. And so I thought, okay, if we just get this to the attention of the president and the prime minister and all the important people, then they're, of course, going to be infuriated that a bunch of corrupt police officers stole $230 million. And so we, we um, uh, publicized uh, the whole thing and got it into the hands of all the top people. And we waited for the Putin, the wrath of God of Putin to come down from the mountain on this whole thing. Um, but instead it didn't. The next thing that happened was they... they uh, the authorities um, went after all of my lawyers. And at this point, we had not just Sergey, but we had six other lawyers, total of seven lawyers from four different law firms working for us. And the authorities um, opened up criminal cases against all of our lawyers. So I went to each one of my lawyers. Criminal and, cases against your lawyers? Against our lawyers. For so what? I, I mean, I, this is so crazy, it's even hard to follow. Ba- what's the basis of the criminal case? They just made up. They just made up false charges. Anything, anything they could oh. come up with. And so I asked my lawyers to leave the country quickly at my expense and come to London and stay at my expense so that they can be out of harm's way. And nobody really wanted to leave. It was also traumatic. But in the end, six of the seven lawyers left, but one of them stayed, and that was Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei was about a decade younger than these guys, and he was what I would describe as a stubborn idealist. He really believed that Russia was a country that was going through a transition and, and that he wanted to be thinking that it was a country of a law a country with laws and that, that that the laws meant something. And so he was sort of really a right and wrong type of guy. And so he said, I'm not leaving, I'm staying. And moreover I'm gonna testify against these corrupt officials. And so on the um, uh, in October, in the middle of October, he testified against them. And the same officials he testified against and on a, on November twenty fourth uh, 2008, came to his home in front of his wife and two children, arrested him, put him in pretrial detention, where they then tortured him to try to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds, and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. Oh my God. They put him in a cell with a hole in the floor, no toilet, where the sewage would bubble up. 
they move him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of all this was to try to get him to sign a false confession saying that he stole the $230 million that he had exposed them for stealing. Oh. And they wanted him to sign this confession, and they wanted him just to say that, that he did so on my instructions. And Sergei was a man of absolute integrity. And for him, the physical pain he was suffering was, was far less disturbing than the moral pain that he was being asked to incur on himself of, bearing, of perjuring himself and bearing false witness. And in the end, Sergei refused to sign any of these things, and his conditions just kept, kept getting worse and worse and worse. After about six months, he ended up losing 40 pounds. He was diagnosed with having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. But a week before the operation was due to happen, they again asked him to sign this false confession. Again, he refused. And then they abruptly moved him to a prison called Butyrka. Butyrka is a really awful, awful prison. It's one of the worst in Russia. It's a maximum security prison. And most significantly for Sergei, they had no medical facilities there. No medical facilities for a guy that they already knew was sick? No medical facilities. And they just refused him any kind of medical treatment. He he and his lawyer desperately, and his pain got so so bad, he was in constant agonizing, ear-piercing pain. And it got so bad, he and his lawyer wrote 20 different desperate requests for medical attention. And every one of the requests was either ignored or denied. They denied him requests for his medical for medical attention. After the, his body just kept on getting worse and worse, and on November 16, 2009, he went into critical condition. At that moment, the prison authorities at Butyrka decided that they didn't want to have responsibility for him, so they sent him over to a different prison that had a medical facility. So they put him in an ambulance, sent him across town. He arrives at this new prison, but instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons come into the cell and start beating him for one hour and 18 minutes. He was found shortly afterwards on the floor, dead, at the age of 37. So oh, God. died on November 16, 2009, leaving a wife and two children. It was the worst news I've ever gotten in my entire life. I got the news the next morning on the, on the 17th of November, and it was like a knife going right into my heart. And I made a vow then there to his, to his memory, to his family, and to myself that I was going to make sure that the people who killed him faced justice. And for the last five and a half years, that's what I've been doing. Oh, what a horrible family. story. Unbelievable. I mean, it's just a nightmare that anyone could be treated that way. The lack of just basic human I can't even say words like dignity in conjunction with a story like this. It's just awful. Just awful. It gets worse. It gets worse. It gets oh, worse. God. It gets worse. So <clears throat> I wanted to get justice, and, and there was a very unique part of the story which, which should have made it easier to get justice, which was that Sergei, unlike every other prisoner who's been killed in prison, Sergei wrote down everything that happened to him in the form of 450 complaints documenting his 358 days in detention. And from these documents that he put together, these complaints, which they all rejected, but still we had copies of, with these complaints, we were able to piece together exactly what happened to him, who, where, when, why, how. And from all these documents, it was there's no plausible deniability. You could prove 
torture and murder. And we thought that the Russian government, no matter how, how corrupt and how sinister, given the high-profile nature of this crime, given the facts were all on the table, would have to concede that, yes, he was tortured and murdered, and maybe not throw the, um, the, you know, the bosses under the bus, but certainly the, the five or six mid-level people who were most complicit. But they decided not to do that. They decided to circle the wagons um, and exonerate every single person involved. And then they, um, and then they did something which is truly remarkable. And this is this will go down in the annals of history as one of the most evil things to ever be done. They decided to put Sergei Magnitsky himself on trial three years after he died. They put Sergei on trial. But, so the man they killed, they put him on trial. They put oh. me on trial as his co-defendant. And this is the first trial in the history of Russia against a dead man. They put him on trial, me as his co-defendant. And then for several months in the summer of 2013, they ran this trial. They ran a trial in a courtroom with two empty seats in the cage. They had a judge, and they had a prosecutor, and they had defense attorneys, and they had the visitor's gallery and the press, and two empty seats. And they eventually convicted both of us. Found that they found him guilty, but obviously there's nothing they can do to him because they killed him already. And they sentenced me to nine years in prison in absentia. So it became clear to me that there was no possibility whatsoever of any type of justice inside of Russia. So I that is I, so crazy and so sinister. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, Bill. Two empty seats in a cage. And someone that they killed is supposed to be in one of the seats. And you are in the seat because you were his boss or they wanted your company or whatever it was. Just nuts. Hard to so imagine. It's, it's truly hard to imagine. And what it shows is how, how rattled they are by this whole, this whole story. So it became clear to me that, that um, we needed to get justice outside of Russia. And we came up with an interesting idea, which was that um, the people who killed Sergei they didn't kill him for ideological purposes. They killed him for money. Simple. $230 million. And we said to ourselves, if they killed him for money, they don't like to keep their money in Russia. They like to keep it in the West. So let's see if we can get the U.S. Congress to ban their visas and freeze their assets. They can't come and travel to the West and do all this stuff. And I went to Washington, and I, I met uh, Senator Benjamin Cardin, who's a Democrat and a liberal Democrat from Maryland. And then I met Senator John McCain, who's a conservative Republican from Arizona. And this is one of the few issues in Washington that everybody could agree on, that there's, there actually is no Russian torture or murder lobby in Washington. So everybody could agree on it. And it became known as the Magnitsky Act, named after my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And it imposed visa sanctions and asset freezes on the people who killed him and the people who do similar types of atrocities in Russia. And it was a long, hard slog, described in great detail in my book, and but I mean, and actually, in, in, in <clears throat> amusing detail in my book about how Washington doesn't work. But eventually, it did work, and we were able to get the law went in front of the U.S. Senate in um, November of of, um, <clears throat> of 2012, and the law passed 92 to 4 in the Senate, and then 89% of the House of Representatives voted for it. And President Obama signed it into law on December 14, 2012, named after my murdered lawyer. And it's not real justice, because obviously real justice is prosecutions for torture and murder, but it's better than the absolute impunity which has been enjoyed by all people. Yes, certainly. And it's a far cry from putting the murder victim and the person trying to bring justice 
on empty chairs and convicting them. Indeed. My God. So now there's one truly heartbreaking epilogue to the story, which is that um, in response to this Magnitsky Act, the um, Putin decided he wanted to punish Americans. And he chose to punish Americans truly the most heinous thing I've ever heard of, which is um, they banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. Now, you know, a lot of people don't wouldn't know that that's a big problem, but there's interestingly, there's a lot of American families that have gone to Russia uh, to adopt Russian orphans. And it's particularly good for these orphans because the, the orphans that are being put up for adoption by for foreigners are the ones who are sick, disabled, HIV, spinal bifida, etc. And, and in spite of their illnesses, Down syndrome, in spite of all these different things, these, these good-hearted Americans have been going over there for years and years, taking these sick children back, back from Russia to America, treating them, and a lot of these kids recover perfectly to live normal lives. And so Putin was basically sentencing some of these children to death because if they don't get the American health care that they were hoping for or, or being promised, they'll die. And so oh, my God. I just, this, Bill, I honestly, as I'm listening to you, I, I can't even imagine what kind of person would punish orphans who are sick by denying them the opportunity, at least, to get adopted and get taken care of properly. It's the most heartbreaking thing. I mean, these are the most defenseless, unrepresented, weak, weakest people in all of society, and Putin is basically killing them to protect his corrupt bureaucrats. And the message wasn't, wasn't really um, to the Americans anymore. The message was to the Europeans who uh, just say, look how crazy we are. If you, do, if you pass the same law in Europe, we're going to do crazy stuff to you. But it, what, what, I mean, this is, the, this is the sign of a truly amoral, unpleasant man. And that's, that's Vladimir Well, Putin. unpleasant, I think, is an understatement, if you don't mind. I have a few choice words of my own, because it's shocking. It's shocking. It's, it's, it's that the worst this, thing. This is the, this, we're talking about a world leader. We're talking about someone who has a responsibility for the lives of millions of people. Now, what's the story? Because I am, I'm very curious, because I don't quite understand. Can you explain what happened with the Ukraine? Can you explain the recent murder that took place in Russia? What's, what is all this? So, so what I've learned about Putin is that he's not a nationalist, as I said. He's a crook. He's, he's, he's involved in stealing vast amounts of money from the Russian people. And what yeah, I, I saw a story on Frontline on ABC News that said the amount he's stolen is somewhere north of $460 billion. It, it's, 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 the amounts are staggering, staggering. <clears throat> He's just a, a crook of all crooks. And, and the thing about it is that you can't really do that while everybody in your country is living in abject poverty, which is what, what's been happening. And um, without those people in poverty eventually saying, why am I putting up with this? Why don't, I just, why don't we just get rid of this guy? Why, why do we, what, what, what's in it for me? And Putin saw this grumbling starting to, to, to happen. And then he saw something which just scared, scared them scared him to no end, which is watching the president of Ukraine, a neighboring country, who's also what I call a junior varsity version of Putin in terms of his crookedness, um, <clears throat> get run out of the whole country by just people standing out on Maidan Square, which is the central square in Kiev. And Putin saw that and thought to himself, my God, I could be next. I will be next. 
what am I going to do? I can't just sit here and wait for it to happen. And so what Putin decided to do is something which has been done by many world leaders in the past when they're trying to shore up public opinion, is he started a war. He started a war with Ukraine on completely false pretenses. He's convinced the Russian people that Ukrainians are Nazi fascists, and these words have great meaning in Russia, who have, they lost 20 million people fighting the Nazis in the Second World War. So he said, these people are Nazi fascists, and they're going to come and ethnically cleanse the good Russian-speaking people of eastern Ukraine. It's our duty as humanitarians to stop them from doing that. And on the basis of that, he started a war with Ukraine. Now, of course, they're not Nazi fascists. They've got nothing to do with Nazis. And this may seem far-fetched for people who are listening to the show, but let us just add that the Russian media is controlled by the Russian government. Is that not so? That is so-so, completely so. And, and so they ran this, this narrative, a day-in, day-out propaganda campaign, and then they go and invade Ukraine, and his popularity just goes to the roof, goes to 88%. People think that he's a genius and a hero and because he's running this war. But what, what this war means now <clears throat> is um, that he can't back down because he's convinced everybody that there are Nazi fascists right on the border who are going to do all sorts of terrible things. And so he's got to continue fighting this war and fighting it and escalating it because he can't back down. And, uh, and so as a result of this, and this is where the story gets even worse, so that then, that then he, he puts himself in, this, in his country in the terrible position where the West then imposes really tough sanctions, which is the obvious right thing to do. Because people and, in the West can see that the war was unjustified. Exactly. So, so, they, so the West imposes sanctions. The Russian economy goes into a tailspin, and, and then he gets even more nervous. And so what does he do even more nervous? And again, I can't prove this, and nobody can prove it, but I believe that he then killed the major, major opposition politician, Boris Nemtsov, because he was afraid of him, maybe getting people out into the streets. So Boris Nemtsov is now dead. There's a, a crazy war going on, totally unprovoked in a foreign country. And the scariest thing about this whole story is that this man, who we've just described as a complete monster who will kill his own orphans for money, He's got his finger on the nuclear button. Oh, God. Ah, oh, so, Bill, talk about your journey, because for you to stay active in the face of opposing someone who is amoral, and I have to say, having read your book and having read many, many articles about you and studying the stories that have come out in the American press on the front line, on 60 Minutes... It seems pretty clear there's a ton of documentation and many, many facts that show Putin is amoral, Putin is a mobster, he's a former KGB agent who was an assassin, and so on. What, what keeps you going? How do you, as a person, stand up in the face of all of this? Well, you know, the murder of Sergei Magnitsky was by far the, the worst Thing that's ever happened in my life. Here you had a 37-year-old man with two kids, a wife, a mother who he looked after, and a good life who was basically taken taken out of his good life, tortured for 358 days, and killed because he was my lawyer. He was not killed for any other reason. If he, if he hadn't been my lawyer, he'd still be playing with his kids. He'd be a good husband to his wife. He'd be able to go to the conservatories or listen to the classical music he loved on Saturday nights. But because he was my lawyer, all that was taken away from him. And it, 
broke my heart. And I, since the day that he was killed, um, I can't go through a day um, without doing something to try to alleviate that pain. And for me, justice is the only way I can alleviate that pain. And so it's, I'm driven not by bravery or idealism, I'm driven by grief and, and this shroud of responsibility that sits on my shoulders. Well, you've gone beyond the fight for justice for Sergei. You've also now, because many people understand that you are holding this banner for justice in the face of this corrupt leader, this corrupt regime, because it goes far beyond Putin now from everything uh, we're learning. There are other people who've come to you with similar stories of these kinds of atrocities, and you're also helping those people. So well, what this, we discovered, ahead, we, 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 we figured out the new technology for dealing with all this, which was this Magnitsky Act. And, and so the Magnitsky Act doesn't just apply to his killers, it applies to all Russian human rights violators. And now we have all of, the, all of these people have a tool that, that the U.S. government can use to help the Russians. And there's now a global Magnitsky Act, which is just going through Congress, which will punish human rights violators from anywhere, even the Chinese human rights violators and Venezuelan and Cuban and and all from all over the place. And the idea is that we're now living in a world, a globalized world, where bad guys love to travel. And this is the one tool we have in the West, which is very, very cheap. It doesn't cost anything to freeze people's visas and, or stop their visas and freeze their assets. And by doing so, it creates a real real consequence because bad guys can, can uh, you know, at the moment, there's some... Well, you know, if they do something bad, that they, they they can have something bad happen to them, which is what wasn't the case before. And, yeah, uh, which makes a big difference. So your your campaign for justice for Sergei Magnitsky has spread now from just focusing on Sergei to focusing on all the Russian crooks, mobsters, murderers, thieves, to anybody who violates human rights anywhere in the world, the Magnensky Act is one way those people can be brought to account. Well, Bill, it's extraordinary. And the story of Red Notice, just quickly tell people what a Red Notice is. So so my book is called Red Notice, and a Red Notice is, is an Interpol arrest warrant, they call it the Interpol uh, Red Notices, which Russia tried to issue um, against me after they convicted me in that same trial with my with, with Sergei yeah, Magnitsky, and uh, they tried three times to go to Interpol to get me arrested wherever I travel in the world, and thankfully Interpol has turned them down. But um, it seemed like an apt name for the book. My book has um, been out for a couple weeks now, it's, um, and I promise you that um, this is that we, what we talked about is just the tip of this iceberg, but it's an absolutely page-turning, riveting read, and, and, uh, and, and the feedback I've gotten from it is that um, that nobody... It, it, it ruins people's um, weekends because um, once you start reading it, you don't want to do anything other than... Well, I can vouch for that. I read the book myself, and it's extraordinary. And it's it's written in a way that is so... It's so gripping. It's as if you're along for the ride, and what a wild, crazy ride. But it does reveal things that I think everyone should know about. We should all know what is going on in this world that we all share. We should all know what other human beings are going through at the hands of an extraordinarily corrupt government. And to be sure that our government isn't playing footsie with people like that in our names. So 
everyone, I, I want to say run, don't walk, grab your copy of Red Notice and give it out as gifts to everyone you've ever known. It's important that in a democracy we are educated and informed citizens. That's the crux of a democratic society. So, Bill Browder, any final words for us? Well, thank you very much for allowing me to share Sergey's story. It's a story that needs to be told, and I'm very grateful to you for, for allowing me to tell it today. Well, thank you for taking the time. I can only imagine how busy you are, and joining us from London uh, meant all sorts of twists and turns to make the schedule work. I so appreciate you doing that. So many blessings on your journey. May you be very successful, and I want all of our audience members to send out a wave of support in every way that you can, because justice means every human being gets to live a life of freedom. And that's what we're all about on Modern Love Radio. All right, everyone, we'll be with you next time. Thank you, Bill Browder. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.